Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. The Oracle Network. Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast where we rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you what we consider and probably what the dealership down the road considers a weird distraction from everyday life. I'm one of your hosts, Alex, and as always, I am joined by my beautiful co-host, Christy. And this week we are talking true crime and just a heads up, it's going to be a heavy case. So before we discuss the case, Christy, what do you need a distraction from this week? Um, I need a distraction from I working a lot lately and then my next day off is in like two weeks. So I'm a little burnt out and I need my birthday's coming up. So I need some fun. So I need to distract from planning slash working slash minor depression right now. (laughs) You know what? Fair, 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 fair. And hopefully by the time that your birthday rolls around, we can celebrate the best way possible because we want to celebrate you my friend so i'm excited already celebrate life because it's not normal at all yeah these days no. or ever it, last two yeah. years last two years <laughs> Fair enough. Alex, so what is your distraction all right so i'm gonna go off-roading and i have picked an article or let's say an instagram post i found from all that's interesting for my need for a distraction and once again you can find all that's interesting on Instagram. They are all underscore that's underscore interesting. And I'm going to read you the title and the caption that came with the Instagram post. So the title is man contracts a rare case of black mold growing on his brain while vacationing in Costa Rica. Mold on his brain. Mold on his brain. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm like, how does it get in there? Yeah, so in 2018, 31-year-old Tyson Badanus took a trip with his fiance to Costa Rica. For days, they biked in the Nicoya Peninsula, drank smoothies, and slept on the beach at night, which that sounds fucking lovely right now. Would love to be doing any of those things. Maybe not biking, I'm kind of out of shape, but smoothies for sure. So on the third day of their trip, Botanus was thrown from his bike and scraped up his arm and elbow. He was patched up at a local hospital and thought little of it, which... I feel like most of us would. But months later, he began having excruciating headaches. Then came episodes of facial paralysis and even strokes. And in March of 2018, an MRI revealed he had somehow contracted an extremely rare brain fungus, one that's most often fatal. So that is kind of all that I have for the description because I just took a screenshot of the post. But Christy, I'm going to show you the MRI scan, which Mm. I will try. I probably will not know how to read very well, but that's totally fine. I'm going to try and post this when we release this episode just know our stories i'll make sure to take all that's interesting so one sec let me show you this the little dot 
Yeah, that little dot on his brain. Mm. Isn't that freaky? That's weird. That's like got the little section, but there's like one little dot in the middle. Yeah. So I need distraction from that because literally this man was minding his own business, having vacation. He fell off his bike and he ended up with a mold, like with mold in his brain. <laughs> oh, there was that scrape on my elbow, my funny bone. Yeah. And now I'm dying of fungus. Yeah. So, you know. Life's terrifying. So, you know, just being reminded of that, need a distraction. Dude, this, the, the body's kind of weird. Like, sometimes we need to get shit in there. I don't, I don't yeah. know. The body does weird things. The body does do weird things. That is for fact. So, speaking of weird, this case that we're going to be talking about this week, as mentioned, it's going to be heavy. Um, it's weird how the case itself kind of panned out in the court system. And by weird, I mean absolutely infuriating. So prepare to be pissed all the way off. I feel like every time I do a true crime, there's always something to get mad about. Usually it's about law enforcement because stuff doesn't get done with very well, but yeah. we'll see. We will get into it. So for this week's true crime case, I thought it would be a great opportunity to discuss not only a true crime case that I haven't heard of or really haven't dived into, but one that shines a light on Asian American rights. Because I think I don't think we've actually covered an Asian American case as of yet. So this may actually be the first, which, you know, I think is good to discuss. Yeah, I don't think we have yet. Mm-mm, no. So with that said, we're going to be chatting about the 1982 murder of Vincent Chin. So before we dive in, I'm going to give a trigger warning due to discussions around racism, violence, injustice, graphic details, and other themes that may not be suitable or easily listenable to. I also want to add that in doing this case and others where racism is discussed, that in no way do we ever want to paint it in any offensive or negative light. Often we try and make light during our episodes, especially during such dark sides of humanity. However, just want to reiterate that we'll never do as such where we feel it is not needed or appropriate. So we're never going to poke fun at the victim because I think that's pretty fucked up if people do that. But basically, no, we never do that. No, but basically just want to reemphasize that when we discuss true crime cases, especially ones that are very heavy, we're, we're doing it so that we can educate ourselves about it more. Hopefully educate the listeners that are tuning in and also just to talk about it because you know, once you talk about it, it's out there more, right? Yes, we want to uh, educate our listeners as always. And the more we talk about the certain things that educates us as well, we make everyone aware of it. When the more we put the content out about it, then everyone's aware of it. Exactly. And the more educated we are, the better we are as people. That's my theory. I mean, who knows? Maybe the more educated you are, the more of an asshole you are. But who knows? We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> or the latter. But yes, the more I feel like the more you know, the, the better for yourself. Exactly. And, you know, if there is anything that is said that could value from some education or enlightenment, please feel free to email us, which Christy will shout out our email at the end of today's episode. As always, listener discretion is advised, but let's chat about Vincent first, his surroundings, and then the crime. So are you ready to get into it, Christy? I don't know if I'm prepared for how angry I'm going to get, but I'm, I'm here for it. All right. So Vincent Jen Chin was born on May 18th, 1955 in the coastal province of southern China known as Guidon province. At six years old, Vincent was adopted by Bing Hing and Lily Chin, who were Asian American and residing in Michigan prior to adopting Vincent. It's been documented that prior to the adoption process, Bing Hing and Lily had tried to conceive a child on their own. However, tragically, Lily suffered from a miscarriage. So I can imagine that adopting Vincent must have probably brought some light into their life, especially after going through such a traumatic, uh, you know, experience as a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't. It's horrible for 
anybody. It's actually kind of crazy to know how common that is, but people don't talk about it until it becomes like actually talked about nowadays now. But yeah, it's very terrible. So I'm happy that they they brought another baby into the life of sorts. Yeah. And not to go on a complete tangent, but I've noticed in, well, the older you and I get, people in our area are more vocal about how many miscarriages they've had. And, you know, I do appreciate that discussion because I think it's a more common thing that happens that we, you know, in a high school or, you know, in education, it wasn't really discussed as much. So it's good that people, you know, if they're feeling safe and comfortable to discuss it, they're discussing it, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, you obviously don't want to normalize it, but you want to make it aware that it is a thing that is common so that when people are dealing with grief and that, like, they're not, they're not on their own, they can talk about it and they have have gone through it. So that it's not that they're the only one things, things do happen. Exactly. So after Vincent immigrated to the USA with Bing Hing and Lily, the family would reportedly reside in Highland Park, which is a city in Michigan. For reference, Highland Park is near Detroit, which is a fairly widely known city in Michigan. I feel like Detroit's pretty, I would I would assume it's worldwide known, but it's, it's, it's pretty no, well known. It's my number two airport. <laughs> yes, yes. So in 1971, the Chin family reportedly moved to Oak Park, which is still in Michigan, about 20 minutes away from Detroit, after Bing Hing had allegedly been mugged. I only saw this in one reference, so I can't elaborate further, unfortunately, but needless to say, the family moved to Oak Park. In terms of who Vincent was growing up, I found a quote from the Detroit Free Press that may help with a description. Quote, Vincent Chin came to be known as a neat dresser, a friendly guy. End quote. And in the YouTube video by Stephanie Sue, which I will be referencing a lot in this episode and would recommend folks to watch it, Vincent was also described as being the glue in friend groups. Basically, he always initiated plans and really seemed to bring his friends together. So he basically, he just sounds like a really great guy. Like, I hate to be so cliche in saying that, but he just sounded like a really good guy. He sounds like that really nice friend in the friend group that everyone just loves and gravitates towards. Yeah, the go-to, right? I mean, I think being that kind of person, you just gravitate towards wanting to talk to them and hang out with them. And that's, I don't know, I just got a warm, fuzzy feeling when I was reading more about who Vincent was. There wasn't a lot of, you know, in-depth detail, but from what I was able to gather, he just, I don't know, he just sounds like a really good guy. I think I'm sad now because he's such a good guy. What's going to happen? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, hold on to that warm, fuzzy feeling if you're also feeling it because it's it's not going to last long. But further from that YouTube video by Stephanie, it seems as though Vincent would adapt to a new language and a new country fairly well without any reports stating otherwise. Vincent would reportedly graduate from Oak Park High School in 1973 and would go on to study at Control Data Institute in Engineering. Sometime in 1979, Vincent met a woman by the name of Vicky Wong. And the two hit it off, a.k.a. they fell in love. Love at first sight. Who knows? Maybe. I, I don't know. Once again, I'm still feeling all warm and fuzzy, so I'm I'm holding on to this moment. These <laughs> not for long, apparently, but okay. <laughs> not long. These fleeting moments, long and hard. Things seemed to be going well for Vincent. By 1980, Vincent had been reportedly hired at an engineering company called Efficient Engineering Co., which is located in Oak Park. According to another Detroit Free Press article, Vincent was hired to be a computer terminal operator and a draftsman. However, he quickly demonstrated his intelligence to his employer, who gave him a raise and put him on the drafting board full time, which that's a pretty big deal. Uh, Vicky and Vincent would go on to get engaged. And by June of 1982, Vincent would be out celebrating his bachelor party. You know, 
young couple getting hitched. It's the last hurrah before the wedding. Vincent's out with his buddies, you know, having a good old time. However, this party would end tragically. But before we discuss the tragedy surrounding that, you know, situation and the horribleness that's going to come, I want to discuss what was also going around this time that's not necessarily about Vincent, but eventually will become part of his life, so to speak. Something going on in the background of sorts. Yes, exactly. So now we move into the section that I call the American car industry. Very random, but... Okay, I'm now expecting the car industry to be the thing of topic, but okay. Yeah, so simultaneously as Vincent is living his life, there was also apparently a lot going on in Detroit, primarily in the 1970s and 1980s. Now you may be wondering, why in God's name are we talking about Detroit in the 70s and 80s when we're clearly talking about someone who doesn't live there? Well... As mentioned before, Detroit is nearby where Vincent lived and worked, being within less than an hour away. That and what I'm going to explain will make sense, so stick with me. Detroit at one point in time was a hot commodity to live in due to the fact that they had a lot of jobs to offer. Most of the jobs came from the three automaking companies that resided in Detroit, being Ford, General Motors, or GM, and Chrysler. These companies were offering a lot to the city in terms of job opportunities and economy. Basically, at one point, the city was flourishing. It was bumping, apparently. It was rocking. It was not stopping. But, well, eventually it would kind of stop. So everyone at the time was driving an American-made car. So you can imagine there were tons of Fords, GMs, and Chryslers on the road. Having a European car wasn't as common in the USA as it was today at that time. Come 1973, though, things would change. According to a Chatham-Kent This Week article, on October 16, 1973, members of the OPEC, which is the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, decided to raise the posted price of a barrel of oil by 70%. So not just a quick little, like, 5% raise, they went basically almost full 100p and raised that price. So, like, what they're, like, doing right now to us and raising the gas prices? Because that's what I feel like. Yeah, basically. It's it's insane. So now I could be wrong, but from what I was able to gather without doing a whole separate deep dive was that the OPEC had increased prices as a way to use oil as a leverage to try and influence political events at the time. Regardless, this would mean that the price of gas for consumers would skyrocket. GM, Ford, and Chrysler had all simultaneously been producing these powerful, large vehicles just before this took place. And in this case, the bigger the car, the bigger the gas tank. In a direct quote from the previously mentioned Chatham-Kent This Week article, quote, Most of the Detroit-built cars were not fuel efficient. It was not uncommon for the average American-built full-size sedan designed to seat five adults very comfortably to achieve 14 or 15 miles to the gallon. In that era, the average car's performance was 13 miles to the gallon, but gasoline was relatively cheap, and so that poor performance wasn't a concern, end quote. From what I gathered, prior to the surge in gas prices, the whole aspect of quote-unquote fuel economy was a very unheard of or rarely discussed concern that Americans, especially in Detroit, had at the time. So now we always are, I mean, speaking from somebody that hasn't bought a car in a couple of years, but you're always looking for a car that has good fuel economy because you don't want to be, you know, financing a vehicle and spending a crap ton of money fueling it right but and nowadays people are also looking for the hybrid option like they want electric cars because they want to spend gas at all and that's the new fad 
Exactly. But back then, <laughs> I just imagine a bunch of Americans, not to shade you all, but I just imagine a bunch of Americans being like, fuel economy, what's that? You know, just very out there, not it's not even a concern at the time, right? But all of a sudden, the fuel is twice as much as what it was. And they're like panicked. They become panicked. They're so concerned because they have these big ass vehicles that take, you know, a lot to fill. And shit, now you're clearing out a bank account just to get from point A to point B. That's how I feel right now. Because yeah, like gases have gone up so much for us. And I know like we are more aware of the economy, but I'm like also yeah. like, oh, why is gas so expensive? So we're not used to that either. Like when we're paying 159 for gas, it's ridiculous. So yeah, you're in a bit of sticker shock as well. But I can imagine they were like, because they were completely oblivious to it. Well, yeah. And we've seen gas prices go up and down for so many years like I remember when I first started driving on my own I I think it was maybe like 90 cents at the gas station and now as you said it's like 150 right so we've seen the highs mm-hmm. and lows whereas back then I'm pretty sure they just were experiencing the lows the low all the time and yeah. they're like what is this <laughs> yeah what is this rise you telling me I have to pay more bollocks like Absolute bollocks. So this new gas price surge made a lot of drivers consider what vehicles they were purchasing, given that gas was much more expensive and they needed to be more mindful of how much they were spending. Basically, people needed to avoid the gas guzzling vehicles, which some smarty pants may have already guessed it, is what led to the downfall of GM, Ford, and Chrysler. So what could Americans do? Like what could American drivers do in this situation, right? Like they have these American built vehicles that, you know, they have become accustomed to. They're they're used to driving them, but they can barely afford to to get to work and back because the gas prices are so high. So what do you think they did, Christy? I'm going to think that they started shopping the more foreign vehicles or parts that we have nowadays, like my fabulous Kia. Yes, and like my fabulous Hyundai, right? Mm -hmm. You know... Eventually, their eyes started to wander away from the American car industry. So European and Japanese imported cars, such as Volkswagen and Toyota, were being highly considered given that they were cheaper and had a better fuel economy. So now we're seeing a blow to the American-based automotive industry as people start to shift and buy out of country. Then another blow, the U.S. government, according to a YouTube video I watched by Stephanie Sue, began putting out the emissions taxes and policies out. This meant that folks would have to pay even more to depending on how much emissions was coming out of their vehicles, which if they had a GM, Ford or Chrysler, it could be speculated wildly that they're paying a pretty penny. So not only is gas expensive, but just the emissions that these cars are pushing out, it becomes ex- uh, expensive, right? And I didn't get into the whole, you know, policies. I, I, di- I didn't really get into the whole emissions tax thing because my brain started hurting um, because money and numbers. But basically, it's just another blow to the situation. It's just another hard hit that's happening yes. in the situation. So, you know, it's 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 not a good look at all for GM, Ford, and Chrysler. No, these American gas guzzling companies that are not as current right now. Yeah. So the companies would respond by trying to create smaller vehicles in order to try and compete with the European and Japanese vehicles that were coming into America. These smaller vehicles were described as being rushed, not properly made, and riddled with recalls and headaches, which is how I'd like to describe my entrance into the world from now on. <laughs> okay, how fitting? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we have to laugh now or else it's... This is going to be a really sad episode, but yeah. Uh, So the American companies seem to have been struggling to keep the same number of consumers. So, you know, they're pushing out these new vehicles. They're not really well done. And people are just 
slowly but surely turning away from GM, Ford, and Chrysler, you know, which is kind of understandable. And with these people turning away from the American brands, the Japanese auto industry noticed a huge influx in their customers. You know, they're like, wow, okay, like we're we're getting a lot of people coming in and buying our vehicles. This mm-hmm. is good. So because of this, they decided that they would offer higher end versions of their cars, such as Lexus, Infiniti, and Acura, which would be imported to the Americas. Due to presumed economic losses, GM, Ford, and Chrysler were forced to lay off workers, which would be huge for Detroit and surrounding areas, given that those three companies were fueling the economy. So now they're laying people off. So now it's 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 getting bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to turn obviously a little bit negative because it's like a huge income to a huge industry in America and it's now losing a lot of it. So exactly. So some may be thinking it seems like there is a fairly clear path in terms of kind of who's to blame here. For example, the American auto industry. GM, Ford and Chrysler could have altered their designs and methods previous to the gas price surge. It seemed as though they didn't until it was kind of too late, right? I mean, it's hard to be able to predict the future in any kind of business, but you would think that given, I don't know, given everything going on, especially where they were getting their oil from, that they might have been maybe a bit mindful to maybe try to make more fuel efficient vehicles at the time. I know I'm probably speaking to like a like a population that basically was like, well, but how are we supposed to know this, that, and the other, which is fine. I totally get it. But in the same sense they could have prepared a little bit better right they could have planned for the worst is what i'm trying to get at mm-hmm. or even yeah when the prices change they try to like modify something to make them more efficient of some sorts but they hadn't really gotten to that point yet with the whole yeah. equal parts of cars or whatever now they got going on well not only that too but why rush the smaller vehicles right like i don't I mean, I get it. There's a huge demand for a different make and model that you're used to making, but why not take your time, right? Vehicles are such an important aspect to some people's lives and to some countries' lives that you have to be very, I don't know, precise about what you're putting out there, right? Because it's something that could either be used as a lifeline or a resource or something that people need to depend on, right? And if you're putting out shitty products, you're going to get shitty results, especially if it's rushed. Mm -hmm. I can tell you right now, yes, I'm very dependable on my life flying in my SUV in these Canadian winters yes. and my drives in the blizzards. So yes, yeah, so you yeah. want to pick which you need and you want to be dependable, obviously. Exactly. The U.S. government had also received criticism, as some had pointed out its lack of help to the three auto companies and to Detroit in general when all of this was going on. According to a YouTube video that I watched by Stephanie Sue, the U.S. government actually was selling land to Japanese automakers so that they could manufacture their cars within the southern states, which they also apparently offered incentives for them to do as such. So you have the U.S. government that's not really helping its own at this time. You know, not to not to be shady about it, but it kind of seemed as if they were like, okay, yeah, we have new business coming in from overseas. Let's bring them in and help them out. Meanwhile, you have Detroit that's like, hey, we're here. Help me. Yeah, they're struggling, but they're also like, let's make money off these companies coming in with foreign parts that are now Mm -hmm. helping us make new cars, which it just is all around trying to make money off something. Yeah. So, you know, good old capitalism, that vicious cycle that just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. And, you know, I I think it goes without saying, too, we could also even put blame on the OPEC for raising the oil prices to begin with. However, none of these routes would be heavily populated. Instead, folks directed their blame towards Japan. So Japan was experiencing an economic peak during the 1980s, and it wasn't even just like the auto industry that Japan was making moves. Japanese-based companies were buying out 
out American companies, which of course was covered in the news at the time. So you have the American auto industry that's losing. You've got the Japanese auto industry that's winning. You have American companies that are being bought out by Japanese companies. So you have all this going on in kind of like the business news and everything. And instead of America looking at this and being like, okay, we need to step our game up. We need to do what Japan is doing or find a way to do it better. They just developed, and I say they as a very broad term, but they developed this hate and this, you know, racist ideology that Japan as a country and everybody in it and associated with it was stealing from America. Oh, yeah, I think I can see that. Yeah, they're going to have this hate and protest mentality, obviously, because they're coming for their companies that are struggling. Yeah. And I, yeah, there's going to be a hate crime guarantee, which even today's world with the whole COVID, like it just it brings up stuff and it brings up things to people that you just don't want to see. Well, exactly. So people were referring to this economic loss that the U.S. was facing as Pearl Harbor 2.0, which for those unaware of what Pearl Harbor was, it basically was a surprise military strike by the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service upon the United States against the naval base at Pearl Harbor in Honolulu, Hawaii on December 7th, 1941. So I think it's safe to say that people were feeling very strongly about this uh, to the point where they're referencing a literal, uh, you know, airstrike, right? You're literally referencing a war type thing versus the growth in infrastructure. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah, I know. So people people were in their fields and, you know, people affected by the drop in the American auto industry and the economic dip, you know, were basically feeling outrage. And they felt as if Japan was causing the U.S. economic hardship and costing hundreds, if not thousands of Americans, their livelihoods. Yes, I can see it being a bit of a shock, but that is a little bit of an excessive thought people are having. Oh, yeah. As mentioned, you know, people in the U.S. at the time were losing jobs. Families had to sell or give up their homes. And I can imagine that, you know, there was probably a lot more tragedy that was kind of happening as well. But instead of looking within their own country to put blame on or to disperse their anger, they pointed it at Japan and really anyone who was an Asian American or AAPI. And with the pointing and blame directing comes the racism and acts of hate. In the YouTube video by Stephanie, she explained that apparently there would be Toyota smashing parties where grown ass men were probably taking, you know, Toyota cars. I don't know if they were like stealing them from people or if they were buying them themselves and then smashing them. Regardless, it's stupid either which way you flip it. But yeah, they were having these Toyota smashing parties, which would be broadcasted on national television, which this just sends such a jarring message to those that identified as being Japanese or, uh, you know, Asian American or AAPI living in the U.S. at the time having to watch this on TV. Yeah, that would be shocking. And on Americans' part, I would say embarrassing. Yeah, it's embarrassing. So to explain further how intense things were getting, I'm going to reference a direct quote from the 1982 New York Times article, which had the not so great title of, quote, resentment of Japanese is growing, poll shows. So here is the quote directly from this New York Times article. Quote, the antagonism is most apparent in the industrial Middle West, where the 
importing of Japanese automobiles has been blamed for the loss of as many as 250,000 jobs. A sign declaring Park Your Import in Tokyo is posted beside a United Automobile Workers building in Detroit. In Milwaukee last fall, workers at a Teledyne Inc. plant tore down and tried to burn a Japanese flag in protest against their imports, end quote. That is excessive. Excessive, embarrassing, and just downright stupid. Because once again, there are very clear signs as to who's to blame for this quote-unquote economic hardship. And it's not Japan. Japan's doing their own fucking thing. They're winning. They're, they're doing well. And that has nothing to do with America. It's America that has to do with America, right? Like, it's it's so silly. Mm-hmm. I keep these eyes because I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's the sass eyes of... Mm-hmm. I totally understand what you're saying. But there were many more acts of passive and outward racism that was taking place. What I've shared is just a nugget of what was going on at the time. So there was a lot more racist shit going on, but I feel like that could be an episode in and of itself. With all this economic crisis and the loss that the U.S. was experiencing and this kind of weird blame train being dropped on Japan's lap like an unwanted fruitcake, I'm sure folks are still wondering, what does this have anything to do with Vincent in particular? So now we have to move on to the unfortunate situation. Once again, trigger warning, if you're not having a good mental health day or if you're not in the mindset to listen to something heavy, this is where things get heavy. So you've been warned. I don't think I'm going to enjoy what's coming next, but okay. I'm so sorry, but we have to discuss it. So as mentioned before discussing the whole auto industry chaos, Vincent was about to be hitched and was celebrating with some friends in Detroit on June 19th, 1982. Vincent and Vicky's wedding was set for June 28th. So think of this kind of bachelor party as the last fling before the ring, if you will. I can picture Vincent and his friends maybe doing some drinking, having some laughs, and just doing regular bachelor's party stuff. I've never been to a bachelor party, but I've been to a bachelorette party a couple times. And you know, lots of penis straws, lots of inappropriate things happening. So picturing that, but maybe minus the penis straws, who knows? Yeah, female theme, I picture penis straws and the males, it's always strippers. Yeah, strippers, which actually we will get to it. (laughs) So it's a good thing you you brought that up. So Vincent and his pals were reportedly at a Detroit strip club called the Fancy Pants Club, which I love that name. I'm sorry, that's so funny. I don't know why it just, as soon as I saw that, I was like, that is just mm, the Fancy Pants because it's a strip club and they're not wearing pants like ever. It's just a mm, chef's kiss. (laughs) Yeah, chef's kiss. Love the name. But unfortunately, this is where Vincent's evening would take a turn. So after a performance by a dancer, a 50-year-old white man by the name of Ronald Ebbins, who was a Chrysler plant supervisor, allegedly yelled at Vincent and his friends from across the strip club stage, stating, hey, you little motherfuckers. After it's been alleged that Ronald told the dancer, whom had reportedly left Vincent's table, quote, don't pay any attention to those little fuckers. They wouldn't know a good dancer if they'd seen one. Which to me, he just seems like your average annoying drunk at a club right where he's mm-hmm. he, he thinks he's a, he's a douchebag where you're like yeah this guy needs to leave yeah somebody needs to cut this man off like seven ryan cokes ago he's being an absolute idiot but this was followed up by other racial slurs by ronald such as asking vincent if he was a quote chink or a jap according to witness accounts which neither of those are good don't like it hate that no Ab- that's fucking terrible yeah i wish i could say it gets 
better from here, but of course it doesn't. Now, some may be wondering who in the absolute hell is Ronald Evans other than the basic 50-year-old white male at a club? And, you know, why is he being such an absolute asshat towards Vincent? So Ronald was reportedly born in 1939 in Dixon, Illinois. After serving time in the Army Air Defense School, he worked at a Chrysler assembly plant in Illinois before working his way up to a supervisor role in Detroit. He would go on to marry a woman by the name of Juanita in 1971, in which he inherited a stepson, Michael Nitz. Michael and Ronald, according to the YouTube video by Stephanie, became close over the love for baseball and reportedly went to the batting cages twice a week, which, as Stephanie mentions in her video, does heavily tie into the story of Vincent. So keep that in mind, that Michael and Ronald love baseball and they go at least twice a week. So now back to the June 19th, 1982 situation. What happened next at the club seems to have two stories, if not more. The first one being that allegedly Vincent walked up to Ronald and his then 20-year-old stepson, Michael, and proceeded to punch Ronald in the face, which I feel like that's kind of, you know, more than deserved, but that's my own opinion. The other version of events is that Vincent did not necessarily approach Ronald right away, and Ronald proceeded to yell, quote, it's because of you little motherfuckers that were out of work. As we said before, I think Ronald's had too many Ryan Cokes, potentially. He needs to be cut off and um, needs to stop yelling things at people. Yeah, somebody needed to kick him out once again several Ryan Cokes ago, but I also kind of peg him as a man that probably drinks like really cheap beer. Like I'm picturing him drinking like the Lucky brand beer and he becomes quote unquote wasted after like three of them. That's kind of man, I think. OV or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, as mentioned, Ronald had worked with Chrysler and so did Michael. Michael had been reportedly laid off by Chrysler due to the quote unquote auto industry decline back in 1979. Just as a reminder, the whole reason for the layoffs in the eyes of some Americans was due to Japan, even though we could go on about how stupid that was. And just as a reminder, Vincent wasn't Japanese, he was Chinese. So, already, Ronald is in the wrong on top of the racist comments and just being a flat-out asshole. A fight reportedly ensued between the men, in which Ronald reportedly began trying to hit Vincent with a chair. So things escalated fairly quickly. We went from throwing slurs to throwing chairs. Yeah. So Vincent allegedly grabbed the chair from Ronald and throws it to the ground, which in the process accidentally hits Michael, and Michael unfortunately gets a little boo-boo on his forehead. At this point, the strip club staff finally intervenes and tells the group of men to get the fuck out, which fair. Vincent and some of his friends go outside while they wait for another member of their group to finish up in the club's bathroom before they go home. From what I gathered, I believe that there were four members in Vincent's friend group that evening. So there's three outside waiting for their fourth who is in the bathroom. Vincent and his group are waiting outside. Ronald and Michael come out of the club, which as some can imagine, more yelling and confrontation begins. Things proceed to escalate, in which it's been noted that Ronald allegedly proceeded to go to the trunk of his vehicle and grabbed a baseball bat, which just kind of circles back to the whole how he and Michael love baseball and would go to the batting cages twice a week. That's why I asked you to remember that because, you know, no, I don't, I feel as though not everybody carries a baseball bat in the, tr- the trunk of their car. So probably good to note. Say homeboy has some athletes your activities outside of work, but then he keeps those weapons in his car all the time, potentially. Yeah, I kind of see Ronald as pretending to be athletic, but really he's not. He just seems, I don't know, like that average annoying dad that's like, oh yeah, like back in my day, I used to be able to hit a home run every pitch, but now can't because of a quote-unquote bad shoulder. Do you know what I mean? Like it's very... I don't know. He just gives me boring white man vibes. He tries to oversell himself all the time. Yes, I also get those vibes, and I don't quite enjoy him at all for any no. of this. 
No. So Ronald allegedly proceeded to instigate another fight with Vincent, who was unarmed and not carrying any weapons whatsoever. So basically, not a fair fight. Ronald then reportedly began chasing Vincent with said baseball bat, but ends up losing Vincent as Vincent outruns Ronald. Once again, Ronald tries to be this like big macho athletic man, but he can't. He, he, he's not he's just not so Vincent's friends probably panicking decided that they need to obviously find Vincent so two of them plan to get into the car and head in the direction that Vincent went in while the other one Jimmy follows Ronald and Vincent on foot so we've got two friends in the car that are going to drive around and look for Vincent and then another one named Jimmy who goes on foot to try and find Ronald and Vincent I like Vincent's friends because his friends are like let's fucking get on this Yeah, and they don't just fucking dip, right? Like, I've seen so many drunken fights where literally, you know, friends will just leave. They're like, yeah, I don't really want to do this right now, right? But Vincent's friends were like, no, we need to find him. We need to make sure he's okay, which those are friends you need to have. Those are friends for life. Yes, which begs the question, Christy, if I was ever in a fight, would you you be there for me? I I would. I wouldn't have weapons kept in my car, but I would be there for you. (laughs) Amazing. Likewise. So I'm glad we, we got that covered. But back to the story. So before Vincent's two friends can get into their car, Ronald comes back and starts instigating shit with them. Then Jimmy comes up from behind Ronald, who turns around and proceeds to chase Jimmy. It basically turns into like a wild goose chase where eventually Vincent and Jimmy are nowhere to be found. And the friends in the car try to kind of, you know, they get in the car, look around for them. And... Ronald and Michael get into Ronald's car and look for Vincent and Jimmy. So basically, everybody's all over the place trying to find one another. We got these cars driving around and everyone's on a little manhunt of sorts. Yeah, basically. Ronald and Michael supposedly looked for Vincent and Jimmy for approximately 20 to 30 minutes before finding them at a local McDonald's. Ronald and Michael proceed to drive up to the McDonald's parking lot where they then get out of the vehicle and Michael reportedly tackled Vincent to hold him down. Ronald, after exiting the vehicle with the baseball bat, began hitting Vincent's head, chest, and shoulder with said baseball bat, which I believe was a Louisville slugger. I know nothing about baseball bats, but isn't it like a more intense one? Like it's a... The name sounds intense, so... Oh, yeah. bad. I know nothing about baseball, so please don't add us. But I want to say it's like a more thick bat. I, I don't know. I, eh? Question mark? I don't know. Someone write us in and tell us what the difference is. I mean, we could Google it. I'm not going to, but we could. Luckily, a nearby off-duty police officer had witnessed the incident and proceeded to intervene. However, it's been documented that Ronald just proceeded to keep going and swinging at Vincent even when the off-duty officer approached the scene. I hope that Ronald gets his ass handed to him because I'm getting pissed. Mm, We'll get to it. Uh, I did read some reports noting that Ronald only swung, quote, four times, where four times is still too many. And based on the damage that was done to Vincent, it makes me believe that it was much more than that. To back this thought process up in a YouTube video by Stephanie, the off-duty officer was reportedly quoted to say in a later interview that Ronald was, quote, swinging like he was hitting a home run, end quote. The next part is going to be very graphic, so just a heads up, going to remind people of the trigger warning as previously mentioned. According to reports, Ronald eventually drops the bat and the off-duty officer goes to Vincent, who is laying on the ground still. The officer apparently was trying to stop Vincent from getting up off the ground, probably wanting Vincent to wait until medical staff arrived on scene. It's been stated that at one point the officer had looked at his own hand after trying to aid Vincent, in which he noticed that Vincent's brain matter was on his hand. And if that doesn't speak volumes about how gruesome this attack was, I don't know what will, because this is 
is pretty fucked up. If you have literal brain matter coming out, it's horrible because you're probably yeah. going to die and oh. something should be done with that. Yeah. And not only that, but I think that just goes to show how hard he was Ronald. Yeah, like how hard and I'm sorry, I don't think four hits would do that. I I or don't four know. very excessive hits. I don't know Ronald's yeah. strength, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, and it's it obviously we're not forensic specialists by any means, shape or form, but to me, in my mind, I can't see four hits with any kind of weapon. Well, I shouldn't say any kind of weapon, but at least with a baseball bat doing that kind of damage, it would have to be a lot more and very intense. Mm-hmm, for sure. Vincent was eventually taken to the Henry Ford Hospital after slipping into a coma supposedly on scene. Hospital staff did proceed to do emergency surgery. However, the brain damage was declared too significant to the point where he would never recover. Vincent would be pronounced dead due to his injuries on June 23rd, 1982, in which he was only 27 years old. Vincent Damn. would be way too fucking like i mean i'm of the mindset that any age is too young but that's that's too young that's way too young vincent would be reportedly buried on monday june 28th 1982 and if that date rings a bell it's because that was the day that he and vicky were supposed to get married that is so sad yeah i feel like it's what vicky's feeling right now like they were having a basketball party and then he died he never came home And then she had to literally bury her fiancé on the day that they were supposed to get married. A day that's such a huge, significant part of anyone's life. Because... Like, just crushed and full of grief. Yeah. Because of one... Well two men's actions, but primarily one, right? So according to the YouTube video by Stephanie, legal officials first looked at whether or not Vincent was a legal American citizen after... I know, after he died. And the reason why I say I know is because Krista gave me that look of, bitch, really? That's fucking bullshit. Are you serious? I know, I know. So, because regardless if he was brutally murdered, if he wasn't a citizen, it may not necessarily matter. Which, this is sarcasm, I'm saying, because it fucking matters. A life is a life. I don't give a shit where you're from or what you do. Or like, illegally. Like, if you get murdered, yeah. you get murdered. It's murder. Exactly. A murder is a murder. A life is a life. Like, I... <laughs> Anyways, so after this was ruled out of the way since Vincent was an American citizen, Michael and Ronald were charged with second-degree murder on June 25th, 1982. The men were granted bail and released after being arrested. And if you're not already pissed off, here's where things get even more infuriating. So in referencing a Detroit Free Press article directly on March 16th, 1983, Wayne County Circuit Judge Charles Kaufman sentenced Ronald and Michael to three years of probation and fined them $3,780.99 cents each after they pled guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter i'm sorry three years probation yep are you fucking no, kidding me no jail time no no jail for time murder. for murder i'm fucking pissed mm-hmm. i'm fucking i'm, I'm fucking pissed it, Whatever that it, from, but yes. <laughs> it, it gets it gets so much worse. So Vincent's family and friends were allegedly never notified of the sentencing hearing, which is a huge slap in the face because they should have been, in my mind, notified and then granted the opportunity to give a victim impact statement. Like, what do you mean they weren't informed? They lost a huge portion of their lives because of the stupidity of two men, and they weren't able to even have the chance to say what how this was affecting them like what like i don't understand i I just don't get it another slap in the face in a direct quote from judge kaufman regarding ronald and michael taken from the history website quote these aren't the kind of men being ronald and michael that you send to jail we're talking here about a man who's held down a responsible job for 17 or 18 years and his stepson is employed and a part-time student you don't make the punishment fit the crime you make the punishment fit 
the criminal, end quote. Um, no, if you did a crime, like I said, murder is murder is murder. Um, you should be sentenced to murder of sorts or some kind yeah. of sen- some kind of jail time, not fucking yeah. three years probation. That's fucking bullshit. Exactly. And in my mind, it's kind of ironic because it's like, oh, you should make the punishment fit the crime. But yet there are how many people that are incarcerated in the United States specifically over possession of marijuana charges for years, decades. But yet there are people that are out there that are literal rapists that can roam around and do whatever the hell they want. But yet it's just it doesn't the way that this judge, Judge Kaufman or what Kaufman or whatever his stupid name is, the way that he's describing it, it makes no sense. And just because, you know, Ronald held a job and Michael was employed and a part time student, whoop de doo, that doesn't change the fact that they did horrendous things to one innocent person. No, and it makes me mad because I guess I want to say that things have changed nowadays. But when you bring up the whole rapist oh. charge too, mm-hmm. like with that, what was that? That boy's name? I don't remember Brody or whatever. Oh, I know he, exactly who you're talking about, but I forget his name too. Yeah, he was just like this, like prestigious college student or whatever. But he raped somebody, but because he's just he's a white boy and blah 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 blah, he he got probation or some bullshit like that. And I was like, no, but the. Just because you're a person, you fit the crime to that. No, the crime is the crime you do the time for that specific crime, regardless of who you are, your background. Because, yeah, there's people in jail that have done more minuscule things that are from different ethnicities or skin color or whatnot that are in there for more minuscule things for longer time than people that have actually done murder. It's ridiculous. Exactly. And just because somebody is white should... I say it should not because I know in a society where we're trying so hard to eliminate white privilege, even though I feel like it's it's a never ending battle and it will be for the rest of at least our lives because Ronald and Michael are white. It was almost seen as the fact that they could get away with it, basically, because they were white and they had jobs and they were, quote unquote, good civilians, this, that and the other that basically got away with murder. And we'll get more into it because there's some a lot of shit that happens after this sentence, but it's just, it's baffling. And it, it really speaks volumes that the justice system really isn't justified. No, like I said, there's things today, even in current times where things are not dealt with properly like they should have been. There's no justice served for some people and things are complete bullshit. And that's how I feel right now with the situation because it doesn't matter what you look like. Like you yeah. did something, you should serve the time. Exactly. So the sentencing verdict, along with the lack of media surrounding Vincent's death until the verdict sparked an outrage within the Asian American and AAPI community. In referencing the history website again, Kin Yi, a president of the Detroit Chinese Welfare Council, was quoted to say that the sentences Ronald and Michael received were, quote, a license to kill for $3,000 provided you have a steady job or are a student and the victim is Chinese, end quote, which I agree. Basically, what Judge Kaufman is saying that as long as you're white, as long as you have a job or a student or you come from some form of white privilege, you could get away with literally killing someone and only have to be a small fine. You literally can get away with cold-blooded with murder. murder. Yeah, mm-hmm. because of what you look like and who you are in society. So jumping to July 14th of 1983, in response to the community outcry, the U.S. Justice Department had allegedly ordered the FBI to look into a possible civil rights violation regarding the murder of Vincent, which by August, a grand jury was given the case. Then on November 2nd in the same year, Ronald and Michael would be indicted on civil rights charges for the attack on Vincent, which was noted, you know, the whole situation basically was due to Vincent's race, which once again, I will remind folks that Vincent was Chinese. He wasn't Japanese. And even if he was Japanese, he is not the sole responsibility of 
Like he doesn't carry that responsibility of the American auto industry's failures whatsoever. And I, in it's it's just, it's just, there's so much broadening above and beyond this, that this little one thing for the whole scope of everything is completely taken out of context. Exactly. So by July of 1984, Ronald was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison where Michael allegedly was found not guilty. If people listening are cheering, thinking that Ronald spent time in jail, I hate to say it, but there isn't anything to cheer about. According to a CNN article by Harmeet Kaur, Ronald was released on a bond. I'm not sure the full legalities and how this was obtained, but what I was able to comprehend mostly was that Ronald never spent a full day in prison ever period not a single day in prison no nope. because I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted yeah he like him and michael might have spent some time in a jail cell shortly after they arrested but i can't confirm or deny that and mostly what i gathered in doing my research was that they neither of them really spent time behind bars for literally murdering someone in cold blood i'm literally speechless i'm so mad yeah Yeah. So in September of 1986, Ronald appealed his civil rights conviction and the court overturned his conviction on this appeal. Basically, Ronald and his legal team were appealing based on witness testimonies potentially not being accurate or potentially being coerced, which once again, I got this from Stephanie's YouTube video that I've been mentioning. Ronald goes back to trial and by May 1st of 1987, he would be acquitted by a federal jury. However, Ronald wasn't a totally free bird. According to an NBC article in 1987, Ronald and Michael had allegedly settled a civil suit out of court over Vincent's death. Michael apparently was ordered to pay $50,000 over the following 10 years, which he reportedly did in $30 a week installments. Ronald, on the other hand, was ordered to pay $1.5 million to make up the projected loss of income from Vincent's engineering position and the loss of his personal assistance to his mother, Lily. So I want to ask you, Christy... Do you think Ronald has completed these payments? We know Michael has. That I can verify based on the research I did. But do you think Ronald has completed the payments? A million dollars? Probably not. In a direct quote from an NBC article in 2015, quote, after making only a few payments, Ronald moved out of Michigan to Nevada, which has a particularly high homestead exemption, allowing individuals to protect up to 550000 of assets from creditors in their homes. The amount that Ronald owes the Chin estate is now estimated to exceed $8 million, and this, once again, is in 2015, due to Accured interest. So, what I gathered from that NBC article in 2015, Ronald was allegedly seeking to have the lien and debt he still owes to the Chin estate removed as he is unable to pay it. I'm not sure where it stands today in 2022, but from what I gathered in some reports, is that now 82 year old Ronald has shared his remorse for his actions. However, that doesn't bring back Vincent. And I'm sorry, I know people aren't just sitting on lumps of money, and I get it that he might have a challenge paying this money back but he he fucking murdered someone like i can't fathom how ignorant this person like ronald is yes and the fact that like he went so he, he moved somewhere specifically so he could protect his funds looks even more shady on his part and now you're refusing to pay them which i like i understand like you said people don't live in lump sums of money but you could pay a little bit of something and still show that you're trying to still pay it till the end of your life because now you're 80 whatever but yeah. not just not paying it all now it's like fucking interest of like eight million dollars like that is ridiculous like you yeah. clearly have no remorse whatsoever and care to pay back the funds that he was told to do for his convictions Exactly. And in my mind, it's like, okay, you know what? You could say that you're remorseful for murdering Vincent. You could say that you feel bad. You can say this, that, and the other. But actions speak louder than words. And I'm sorry, but if you are finding it a challenge to pay back that money, 
maybe you should have fucking thought about your actions before you did them, before you brutally murdered a 27-year-old man who did nothing to you, who was just out with his friends celebrating his engagement and the fact that he was Mm -hmm. going to be married and probably live a beautiful, lovely life before you came in the picture and fucked it up. Murdered him. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. (sighs) So yeah, no. And you're right, too. The fact that he moved to Nevada where there is that, you know, a homestead exemption, to me, that's shady boots. Like, that is shade all the way to the top. I think he did that on purpose. Yeah, like I said, like, he just had no remorse whatsoever. He did that purposely, almost feels like, or was searched out, so he didn't have to pay the restitution. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So moving away from that piece of trash, aka Ronald, I want to focus on what came out of Vincent's murder, which outrage, of course, but also activism and an echoing voice from those who identify as being AAPI or Asian American saying, hey, we're here too. And we're fucking tired of this. Protests began in Detroit, which was a huge moment in Asian American history as it really united everyone and brought in the term Asian American more so to the forefront from, you know, previous situations from what I gathered in my research. The protests began popping up all over the country. So kind of similar to the um, George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter protests that kind of came out. It started in one area and then it kind of blossomed, right? So we see this huge blossoming of protests of people saying, hey, Asian Americans are here. We need to respect them and we need to protect them, especially from assholes like Ronald and Michael, who literally are coming out of left field, taking people's lives for no reason. I mean, there's, there's so many other cases like Vincent's that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to discuss more on the show. But this is really a pivotal point in time where Asian Americans and, you know, those that identify as AAPI were like, hey, (laughs) we're here too. And we need to be protected. Like we are humans. We have the right to be protected, just like white folks, just like black folks, just like, you know, indigenous folks. Oh, absolutely. It's a huge moment in history, for sure. The Asian American Citizens for Justice, aka the ACJ or AACJ was also created out of the horrific murder of Vincent. And a direct quote from the ACJ's website to describe what they do and who they are a bit further quote, ACJ or AACJ is an Asian American nonprofit organization that provides victims of discrimination with legal, social, and economic resources and provides for immigrants to gain full participation in the political process. The organization today works to combat xenophobia, hate in all of its forms, and provides legal, social, and economic resources to victims of discrimination and advocates for immigrants to gain full participation in the political process, end quote. In terms of Vincent's family, which this gets really, really sad, I mean, this whole episode is really, really sad, but this this is also kind of a hard blow. Vincent's father reportedly passed away months before Vincent did, which meant not only was Lily grieving Bing prior to, but then she had to add more grief to her plate in losing Vincent. So in a quote by Lily from a CNN article, quote, Vincent's soul will never rest. That is so sad. I didn't realize his dad passed away. And the fact that she's probably like having the wedding to look forward yep. to as kind of, and then now that they don't get married because he died. Yeah. Lily would pass away in her 80s in June of 2002. And as far as I'm aware, Ronald and Michael are still alive to this day. So to kind of summarize this case, which I feel like it's really hard to summarize this case because there's so many avenues we could have gone and there's so many things that we can kind of keep discussing and so many things oh, yeah, we could yell at. All day, just like my anger and what this yeah. and what if that and whatnot. 
Yeah. So I feel as though even though we did discuss a lot of the life and death of Vincent and all that kind of took place, there could be a never ending discussion about the injustice and the ongoing racism towards the AAPI and Asian American community as a whole. I want folks listening to take a moment and realize how much a society spiraled and shift a blame where it didn't need to go. So to kind of recap, the American auto industry got hit bad after a price surge of gas, which then led to sloppy attempts to try to recoup by the companies heavily affected in Detroit being GM, Ford and Chrysler. Instead of taking accountability and seeing where the American auto industry could improve and do so maybe in a more calm and less rush paced, the American auto industry were trying to pump out new ways to regain profit and it failed. That led to a lot of people losing their jobs and livelihoods, which is devastating. And I'm not going to try to discredit that in any way, shape or form. I hope that's not how I came across because being laid off and losing job, like losing your job and, you know, the uncertainty of not having an income, like that is a very devastating and tragic situation. But at the end of the day, it's not any, it doesn't give you any excuse to murder somebody, right? It's, it's an awful thing, but that doesn't give you a free pass to murder somebody, period. No, that gives you no excuse to brutally attack anybody, murder them, hurt them, or vocalize your views on them at all. Exactly. So instead of acknowledging the root of the problem being within their own backyard, Americans shifted their blame to Japan and to Japanese and ultimately Asian Americans or AAPI folks, which I forgot to kind of explain what AAPI meant. I had it in my notes somewhere, but I guess I must have accidentally took it out during my editing. So AAPI, for those that are wondering and wondering why I keep dropping it, means Asian Pacific American or Asian Pacific Islander or Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, just as a heads up. Um, But regardless, like they shifted the blame to that group of people, even though they had nothing to do with it. Like they weren't the reason that they lost their jobs. They, no sole individual from that ethnicity or that culture had anything to do with what was going on in Detroit. Like it's not like one day that, you know, every AAPI person or every Asian America person woke up and said, you know what, let's fuck with the American economy. Like, let's no, just they completely nothing to do with it. They were just association very far apart. Yes. yes, exactly. So a spiral of hate and racism just starts pouring out until it lands and manifests on that fateful June 19th, 1982 evening. I also want to acknowledge that AAPI racism isn't a new topic. It's been around for decades and unfortunately continues to this very day. For example, in March of 2020, former President Donald Trump, which uh, had referred to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus on Twitter. This tweet led to a slew of racist comments and statements being shared online and in real life towards the Chinese community as well as the Asian American community on top of that. Then there was the 2021 Atlanta shootings where then 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long was charged after shooting three spas in the Ackworth, Atlanta area, which I'm also so sorry if I pronounce Ackworth wrong. I think it's Ackworth, but regardless, uh, This incident reportedly killed eight individuals, six being women of the AAPI community. Although I did read in the New York Times article that Robert supposedly told police he had a sex addiction and shot the parlors to remove his temptations, I also want to emphasize the correlation in a direct quote from that New York Times article to this whole um, racism towards Asian Americans and AAPI community, which was said by Mayor Keisha Bottom, quote, whatever the motivation was for this guy, we know that the majority of the victims were Asian. We also know that this is an issue that is happening across the country, is unacceptable, is hateful, and it has to stop, 
end quote. I know that there will probably be more crimes like this and many more stories similar to Vincent's that we probably will cross paths with on weird distractions. I'm going to leave listeners with a bit of homework if you choose to do it. That's totally up to you. We're not your parents and can't force you to do anything. But I would love for folks to educate themselves by checking out the Stop AAPI Hate website, which will be included in today's show notes, and check out the resources for today's episode as well. I think with more education, acceptance, and kindness, we may come to a day someday, hopefully, where stories like Vincent's will be a thing of the far, far past. And that is this week's True Crime Case on Weird Distractions podcast. Wow. Super depressing way to start my depressing day. Thanks. Yes, so hopefully everyone is getting those SSRIs and SNRI medication in them and or going outside, getting that vitamin D from the sun. Sorry to bring the mood down this week, but honestly, it's one of those things where... Like I said before, we try to bring some light in discussing really heavy topics. But at the end of the day, the reason why we discuss heavy topics is because... It's stuff that needs to be discussed about needs to be brought out and yeah. more attention brought into it. And they're important topics, obviously. Well, yeah. And not only that, but we need to educate ourselves. When we're educated, we're more mindful and empathetic and understanding of, you know, situations that come up in the future or are happening in the present, right? Like when we look at the past, we can understand the present and plan for the future a bit more, right? So hopefully I did today's case justice. I know it was a lot and I apologize in advance if I mispronounced anything. I mean, this is episode 99. You guys know that sometimes words are hard. Hello, welcome to our podcast. But Hopefully we did it justice is what I'm trying to get across. And I was going to read off the resources for today's episode, but I think I'm just going to put them in the show notes because I want to hear Christy say some great, great things about how people can support the show, where they can get even more weird distractions and kind of wrap things up. But if you are wanting to look into the resources that I used today, please read the description for today's episode. Now, Christy, it's your turn to shine, my darling. My time to shine. So yes, if you're looking to find our show, if you're not listening right now, which obviously I hope you are, you can find us on various platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Feel free to do one there. You're going to give us a few ratings if possible. Other platforms, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, and many more. If you just search for us, you will find us on those various platforms. You can also support our show on our various media pages run by the lovely Alex on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, just searching Weird Distractions Podcast or on Twitter, we are Weird Distract I1. And furthermore, if you're looking for some more Weird Distractions, some more content, some more, if you're looking more in general, if you want to hear more of us, we are on Patreon. If you go on Patreon, we have two tears again is searching our name there's various things to get some stickers some shout outs i want to shout out right now to our current patrons we have tom bailey angela john alicia lynn shadow and sissy so thank you guys for all of your support as always we love you but going in there there's just various blog posts alex puts out we have extra content you get early access to our regular content so it's always a, um, a good thing to get on there if you want to get extra goodies that check it out for sure beyond that we have other ways to kind of help monetize and help our show out other than patreon getting the content we have Redbubble on there you go on you can find basically any kind of merch we have available any of our logo on certain things if you're searching for something specific or you can also go on to buy me a coffee you can pledge any amount of money if you like just to kind of give the show a little spice of help there and lastly we always want to hear from you guys we are always looking for any questions any topics any stories of your own we always have our listener distractions that we're working on and giving you guys more episodes of those so if you're looking for anything want to share anything you can always email us at weirddistractionspodcast.outlook.com to give us that feedback give us your stories that we want to share with other people as well yes and you should keep your eyes and your ear holes open because we might be having another listener distractions episode dropping on our main feed fairly soon 
soon. <laughs> I'm so excited. But yes, we we have one in the works and we're looking to do more. We would like it to be more of a regular thing. So if you like those episodes, if you're sitting on a story, email us for crying out loud at Weird Distractions Podcast at Outlook.com. And as always, if you need a distraction, we got you. Bye. Bye. Oh.